Genesis chapter nine. If you don't know where Genesis is, that's fine. It's the very first book of the Bible. When I say chapter nine, I mean the big nine. Um, and when I say verse, I mean the little one or the little two. So big nine, look, that's chapter nine. And for example, the little two after the nine, that'd be Genesis chapter nine, verse two. Starting from Genesis chapter nine, verse one. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives on, that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is its blood. And for, every, and for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it and from man. From his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his image. And you, be fruitful and multiply. Team on the earth and multiply in it. Then God said to Noah and his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you. And with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you, as many as come out of the ark, it is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I've set my bow in the cloud. And it should be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I've established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. The sons of Noah who went forth from the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan, or Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these the people of the whole earth were dispersed. Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside, then Shem and Japheth took a garment and laid it on both of their shoulders, walked backwards and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backwards and they did not see their father's nakedness. When Noah woke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him, he said, cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. He also said, blessed be the God, blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem and let Canaan be his servants. After the flood, Noah lived 350 years. All the days of Noah were 950 years and he died. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that in the busyness of school and sports and Christmas, that you speak to us about a serious thing, about a global flood, about death and judgment but even better, promises, Lord, truths that we can cling to and hold to even when our life is crazy. We can cling to you 
because of what you've given to us in your son. Help us, Lord, to see how serious this is, to see how good this is, to see how much we need this. May every soul here, Lord, see the truth and be changed. It's in Christ's perfect name we pray. Amen. He walked off the ark. The morning was clean, the air crisp, a glad change from the stench of the animals in the ark. His eyes scanned the bare earth. Mountain ranges of jagged rock and sheer cliffs sprawled before him. In his long 600 year life, he never seen anything quite like this before. By the grace of God, this was their new home. As the critters galloped and slithered and scurried and prowled and hopped and flew from the ark, Noah breathed a sigh of relief. The job was done. By the mercy of God, they'd made it. A hundred years of building preparing, a year and a month of floodwaters, waiting and waiting. They endured much, but by the grace of God, they were saved. And now they're finally here. Fresh start, a new world. Noah squeezed his wife's hand and he looked at his three sons and his three daughter-in-laws. By the grace of God, this is all that was left. Eight people. They're the beginning of a new humanity. But a new world is scary. Where would they live? What would they eat? How would they survive? Where would they go? There's no roads, no buildings, no homes, no water, no tents. There's no grocery stores, no farms, no wells, no hospitals. Noah had lost almost everything. His entire world had been turned upside down and inside out. All that he had known for 600 years was gone. So yeah, it's a new beginning. Lots of excitement. And with, yet with all the uncertainty that comes with all things new. Whether you knew it or not, when you entered middle school, you entered the most chaotic time of your life. In the next three years, of you, three years, all of you will transfer to a new school. Your teachers will change. Your friends will change. Your bodies will change. Most of you will get taller. Your voice will get deeper. You'll never feel the same, look the same, be the same ever again. Some of you will move churches. Some of you will move cities. Many of you will move houses. In less than even 10 years from when you entered middle school, all of you have left your childhood behind. Your cute baby faces will turn into know, less cute adult faces. Your relationship with your parents will be totally different. You'll enter in adulthood. Most of you will move away from home. If you go to college, in 10 years, almost all of you will be graduated. You'll probably be entering your first career or maybe thinking about going to grad school. Some of you might be dating, maybe you think about getting married. You might even be serving in youth group for your church as a small group leader. That's a lot to cram into one decade of your life. What are you gonna do when everything seems so new? Everything's so different, crazy, chaotic, unknown. Now, we, you have no flood to endure like Noah, but all of us still are confronted with many situations in our life in an ever-changing world of unknowns, of uncertainties, of anxieties and fears, but the truth remains. Even when the world changed, the truth remains. And this truth that we build our lives upon is a sure foundation, an anchor for our souls that help us to stand unmoved even when the storms of life come. And all of these truths ultimately point us to Jesus Christ, who is the embodiment 
of grace and truth. In Genesis 9, there are four truths that help us to stand no matter the storm of our lives. First, man is still man. Second, God is still God. Third, man is still sinful. And fourth, man still needs a savior. Before the flood, that was true. After the flood, those truths remain. Our first truth, man is still man. We, all mankind, are made in the image of God. Look at chapter nine of Genesis, verse one. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Why? Into your hand, they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. As I gave you the green plant, I give you everything. So this part of Genesis 9 repeats Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 to 30. If we remember, there God said that all man was made in his image. That was like him. He made us little cake kings and little cute queens to rule over his creation for him. He blessed us. He told mankind to be fruitful, multiply, and gave them every green plant for food. And now in Genesis 9, he reiterates that and expands it. Not only green plants, but also animals. So man is no longer vegetarian, but also carnivore now. This is God's generous gift. Why does he do this? It's because I think Noah needed to plant plants in order to reap the harvest later. But right now he probably has nothing to eat. And so God is giving him this provision so he could survive as a gift. Life after the flood is really different. They needed another food source. So if you love barbecue and tacos and steak, you should give thanks to God because this is a gift to us, right? Meat is a gift from God. Um, If you're not a meat lover, you're a vegan or vegetarian, uh, you can't bear to think of eating Bambi or Wilbur or Hey Hey or Chick-fil-A cows, that's fine. Um, You'll probably be healthier than all of us and also live longer than all of us. But regardless, meat's a gift, okay? So we should thank God for the good gifts that he gives to us. Fundamentally, main idea is this. God loves mankind. He's gonna provide for us. He's gonna make sure that we can survive because we're precious to him. God also gives protection for his people. Look in verse four, chapter nine, verse four. He says, you shall not eat flesh with its life. That is with its blood. For your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast I will require and from man and from his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Listen here. Whoever sheds the blood of man, that's murder, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. What's this? God is saying the blood and the life are connected in verse four. And in verse five and six, he's saying that you must not murder another human being. We take that for granted, right? We know murder is wrong, but God is instituting basically sanctified, sanctioned killing of animals. He's saying you cannot kill humans though. That's totally different. They're a different category of creation. Why? Because you and I, man is made in the image of God. To be made in the image of God means to be stamped like a coin, to be in the picture, in the form of God, in a sense. To be stamped with the image of God means that this is who you resemble and therefore this is who you derive your worth from and who you belong to. Um, At home, there's a little silver piece of metal like this big that I keep kicking around in the garage. 
Um, and on that piece of metal is an image, a picture of a guy named George Washington. What am I talking about? A quarter, right? It's a quarter. How much is that George Washington coin worth? 25 cents. Not much, right? That coin is stamped with the image and likeness of George Washington. Therefore, in our society of America, we give it the value of 25 cents. Human beings made in the image and likeness of God are stamped with the image and representation of the creator himself. Every single one of you, every single human being that's ever existed, period, is granted, therefore, the, creator that, the, the value that the creator himself gives to us. Inestimable worth. There's no money amount that can equal human life. So God says, if you murder one of these image bearers, if you murder one of my humans, you deserve the greatest punishment of your own life. Just like in the garden, even before the flood, man was precious in God's sight. He protected us. He said we're valuable. We are, he loves us. After the flood, that's still true. Mankind is still stamped with his own image. That's why if you murder someone, you deserve to die. We don't have time to talk about the government implementation of capital punishment. Uh, that's the legal authorization of someone being killed for their crimes. The Bible is not arguing for a specific policy of how this is carried out, but rather the, the principle, okay? So don't, don't come at me with like politics and governmental stuff. I'm not talking about that. What I'm talking about is that God says, if you murder a person, the only punishment that is high enough to punish you is your own death. That's how serious he takes human beings. That's how much he values even one single human life. Just one point of application here about the image of God. No matter what happens in your life, whatever season you're brought into, whatever your storm, this is always gonna be true. You're made in the image of God. You're stamped with value. You're treasured. You're loved because of who he says you are. Your worth is not determined by you, what you can or can't do, what you own or don't own, what you have done or have not done. It's not determined by other people, what they say about you or what they don't say about you or what they give to you or what they take from you. You're made in God's image. Therefore, your worth is determined by him and him alone. He says you're shaped like him. You're patterned after him. You're stamped with him. So who cares what other people think? In many ways, who cares what even you think? God says you're treasured, you're precious, inestimable worth in his sight. And if you're a Christian, you're like doubly precious, doubly loved. You're a child of God. He loves you, he knows you, he cares for you. Christ died to purchase you with his own blood. Like it doesn't get any better than that. That's how much he cares for sinners like us. So your worth is not in you, your worth is in who God says you are. That's the first truth. Man is still man, still made in the image of God. Second, God is still God. God is still the promise keeping God. Look at chapter nine, verse eight with me. Then God said to Noah and his sons with him, behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark, it is for the beasts of the earth. God promised all the way back in chapter six of Genesis, he's gonna establish his covenant with Noah and his family. A covenant's like a, like a divine contract, like a sworn promise that God will never ever change or break. What's the covenant? Look at verse 11. 
I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood. And never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I set my bow in the cloud and it'll be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. So there's the covenant and the sign of the covenant. Or in other words saying is the promise and the reminder of that promise. The, pro- the promise is the reminder of the promise is a bow. Like literally like a bow and arrow, like you shoot arrows from to, to, to kill stuff, right? We call the bow in the clouds a rainbow. What it means is that instead of God taking his bow and aiming it at the earth in his righteous wrath, he's laying it up. He's hanging it up, putting it to rest because he's choosing mercy instead. But slow down with me a little bit. Before we see a rainbow, I know we don't see much very much in SoCal, but before you see a rainbow, what needs to happen? Rain. That means that in order for God to show Noah the rainbow, he's first gonna make it rain. And I imagine that when Noah saw it rain, he absolutely started flipping out. You know why? What happened the last time it rained? The flood. 40 days, 40 nights, constant pouring out of the heavens, rain. To Noah, rain means flood, means wrath, means devastation. Rain means screaming, drowning, death. Rain means run for your life. The world is ending. But now God takes the symbol and phenomenon of rain, the symbol of death, and he flips it upside down. He promises after the rain will come the rainbow. After the death will come peace. So rain used to mean death and destruction, but now it means a reminder of God's mercy. It means after the rain, the rain will end and the rain will bring a rainbow, the symbol of God's promise to never again destroy all the earth with the flood. So every single time then it rains after this moment, Noah doesn't have to panic. That, oh my gosh, God's gonna flood the earth world again. He can instead look for the rainbow, the promise, the reminder that God is good He's gonna choose to be merciful to sinners. The rainbow that comes only after the rain is a proclamation of his everlasting mercy. God always keeps his promises. You know that, right? God always keeps his promises. Remember you've heard the proverb before, uh, there's always a silver lining to every cloud, right? The more biblical version is that in God, there's always hope. There's always hope. That's why we cling to covenants to promises of God. His sure, trustworthy, faithful word brings hope to the hopeless, brings light to those who are stuck in darkness, brings help to the helpless, brings strength to the discouraged. His truth stand, his promises stand, and therefore we can too. So when your life's out of control, when you have no idea what's going on, when you're discouraged, you're depressed, you're downcast, God's promises are still true. Hebrews 13 says, He says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. In Matthew 28, Jesus says, I am with you always, even to the end of the age or the end of the world. In Isaiah 46, God says, my purpose will be established. I will accomplish all things according to my good pleasure. And one of my favorite verses, he promises, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And And through the rivers, they will not overflow you. 
When you walk through the fire, you will not be scorched, nor will the flame burn you. For I am the Lord, your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. When the storms of life come, when the rain is pouring, remember that the rainbow comes only after the storm. So when you see rainbows, and you'll see many, don't think of the social political movement of our modern day. Think of God's covenant to Noah. Think of his promise of mercy. Think of his promise to us. Those bold colors across the sky, as far as the eye can see, say this. This is the bow of God in heaven. He's still God. He still keeps his promises and he's sworn to be merciful. He's worthy of your trust. He's worthy of your faith. He's the one who transforms even darkness to light, even judgment to grace. He makes all things for your good. So in every stage of your life, all times, all places, God is still God. He's still the God who's faithful. He's still the God who keeps his promises. He has not changed. He stays the same. So we've seen two truths. Even after the flood, man is still man. Namely, man is still precious in God's sight because he's made in God's image. Secondly, we say that God is still God. He's still the God who keeps his promises forever and ever in his chosen mercy. Now, if I stopped right here, the sermon ended, we'd all go, I'm happy, everyone would be great, but our chapter's only half over. Third point, man is still sinful. We cannot escape our sin. Look at 18 with me. Verse 18. The sons of Noah went forth from the ark and they were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah and from these people, the whole earth were dispersed. Noah began to be a man of the soil and he planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Then Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it over both their shoulders, walked backwards and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backwards and they did not see their father's nakedness. Okay, okay, we read this and we're like, what is going on, right? Like Noah's supposed to be righteous and blameless, a man who walked with God and now he's getting drunk. We see Ham and you're like, dude, why is Ham going in and looking at his dad? Like this is super gross. Like, but is it like, what did he sin or something? Like what's, what's going on here, right? Noah is painted as a new Adam of sorts. Both of them were from the ground. They worked the ground as farmers. They're both blessed by God. Both were the heads of new humanity and both sinned. Verse 21 says that Noah became drunk. Drunk is becoming so poisoned. This drunk is, drunkenness is so poisoning your body with alcohol that it impairs your thinking, robs you of your mind, empties you of wisdom and fills you with foolishness. Ephesians 5.18 explicitly says, do not be drunk with wine for that is debauchery. Debauchery means self-destructive recklessness, throwing yourself into sin. So this is man, this is, this is Noah, the man of God sinning terribly. His sin is shameful drunkenness, so drunk that he exposes himself naked in his tent. But what's Ham's sin? Verse 22 says that Ham, Noah's son, went into his father's tent, saw his father's nakedness, then left the tent. On the surface, it kind of seems like, okay, Ham, you know, saw his dad naked and therefore that's, that's sin. It's like, but, but is, is that necessarily sin? I mean, it's gross, like it's super weird, right? But what if like Ham just walked in there like, oh my goodness, and then walked out, right? Would that, would that be sinful? I don't think so. 
Realizing this, some Bible students um, throughout the histories, throughout the centuries, have suggested that Ham did not only look at Noah when he was naked, but actually did something much worse. Maybe Ham not only looked, maybe he did something really disgusting. But I actually think that verse 23 says he didn't. Verse 23 says that Shem and Japheth, all they did to fix this problem was to go in, have a cloak on their back, walk, walk backwards and cover their dad. So they he wouldn't be exposed anymore, right? So if Ham did something worse, something that simple wouldn't have actually solved the problem. But if that's true, was Ham's looking really his sin? Is, is that really what the problem is here? I don't think so. Look at verse 22 again, 922. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father, listen here, and told his two brothers outside. His sin was that he exposed his father's shame instead of covering his father's shame. By shame, I don't only mean, you know, a feeling of embarrassment, like you get all hot, you feel like you want to shrink and die and just hide from the world. But I'm also talking about the reality that you're being ridiculed, disrespected, made small in someone's eyes. Let's say you have a friend, let's name him Bob. And you notice that Bob always comes to school kind of like shabby clothes. You know, his, his shoes always have holes in them. His pants are too short for him. He's got holes in his, in his sweater. And so, you know, being a loving friend, you ask him about it. Hey, Bob, how come your sweater has holes all the time? His eyes go down and he shamefully, slowly says, my family's poor. We don't have much money and my dad hasn't been able to find a job for years. We can't afford new clothes. So I wear my brother's old ones. I don't remember the last time we ate in a restaurant. We don't go on vacation. And we might have to even move soon because it's so expensive to live here. Now, what would be the loving thing for you to do? You give him some of your clothes, right? Or buy him some of your clothes. You give him school supplies. You invite his family over for dinner. You invite him to church. You pray for him. You serve his family. You love them. That would be the right thing to do. But what if instead, right after he told you this, you run into the lunch quad and yell, hey, everybody, Bob's a loser. His family's dirt poor. He's so poor, they can't even afford to go to McDonald's. What a loser. What would your sin be? Would it be because you found out about his poverty? No. It would be because you uncovered, you exposed his shame for the whole world to see instead of loving and covering his predicament. That's what Ham did. He didn't cover up his dad's nakedness. He didn't protect his father from embarrassment and shame. He went out and he blabbed about it to the only two other guys on the face of the planet, his brothers. He mocked Noah to the world. He made fun of the righteous blameless man and he brought even greater shame upon his own dad. The fifth commandment given in Exodus chapter 20 is honor your father and mother. That is definitely not what Ham did. He shamed them. That was his sin. Verse 24, when Noah woke from his wine and knew what his youngest son Ham had done to him, he said, cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants, he shall be to his brothers. What's a curse? A curse is the opposite of blessing. Here Noah is responding to Ham's sin by a proclamation of punishment, of anti-blessing. But you notice, who got cursed? Not Ham, Canaan, Ham's son. Like, how is that fair, right? 
your dad does something wrong and you get blamed for it. What, what is going on here? Now, again, for centuries, millennia, Bible readers have been debating this issue. There's like lots of different views and lots of different people fighting. Uh, Genesis 9 doesn't ultimately tell us what Noah was thinking, but here's what I think is going on. Okay, look with me at chapter nine, verse one. Chapter nine, verse one, it says, and God blessed Noah and his sons. So I think Noah is reluctant to curse Ham, even though Ham deserves it, because God had just blessed Ham. God had done something good for Ham. Noah was not about to contradict the Lord of heaven and earth. So he cannot curse Ham directly, but he can curse Ham's son. And that's actually a punishment that matches Ham's crime. Ham's sin was that he shamed his father, right? So Noah is saying, just as my son shamed me, Ham, your son will shame you. And that's why Canaan, you are now cursed. That doesn't fully resolve the tension in our mind. I still have, I have lots of questions too. You probably have questions. But the main point of this passage actually is not why was Canaan cursed, but the fact that he was cursed. To the Israelites reading the book of Genesis for the very first time, this would explain to them their whole life, their whole life story or their nation's story. Look with me, chapter 10, verse 15. So look for the big 10, jump down to the small 15. That's the verse. Canaan fathered Sidon, his firstborn, and Heth. And the Jebusites, the Amorites, the Girgashites, the Hivites, the Archites, the Sinaiites, the Arvidites, the Zemurites, and the Hamathites. And afterwards, the clans of the Canaanites dispersed. Do you recognize all these ites people? Anyone? Some, maybe. Okay, so these clans, these people, were those that had taken the promised land, were living in sin, and whom Israel was commanded to go and destroy. These are the sworn ancestral enemies of the nation of Israel. And when, they read, when the Israelites read Genesis 9, they would see, that's why the Canaanites hate us because it goes all the way back to Canaan. This is the seed of the cursed line, the line that, used, that followed Satan hates us. We're opposed to each other. This is not just like, oh, we don't like them because they look funny. This is Canaan himself was cursed by our father, Noah. That's the meaning of the curse. That's what's going on here. Ham sinned, Canaan was cursed. Canaan's descendants, therefore, are cut off from the blessing of God because they hated the people of God. Now, just a quick aside about this passage. Um, some of you might've heard that this passage justified or used as justification for American chattel slavery. Anyone heard that before? Okay, some of you. Some people have argued, oh, because Ham sinned, therefore all of Ham's descendants deserve to be slaves. American slaveholders and slave traders argue this to justify chattel slavery of Africans. That is not what the text says. Who was cursed? Ham? No. Canaan. Ham's descendants include the Egyptians, um, and also in verse 6 of chapter 10, the Cushites and Put. Those people are not the cursed people of God. Only Canaan is. And where do the descendants of Canaan live? In the land of Israel, not in Africa. So people for hundreds of years read their Bibles wrong and they sinned grievously because of it. Anyways, my house school teacher actually argued that the Bible supported slavery from this argument. It's a bad argument, don't believe them, okay? Anyways, to recap the short section, Noah sinned by getting drunk. 
Ham sinned by shaming his father. And sin always brings a curse and destruction. That's the point. The flood didn't solve the sin problem. The sin nature was still there, still a cancer, still infecting every part of man. So for you, in your chaotic life, when things change, when people sin against you, when you sin, you need to remember, you're a sinner. And so is everyone else around you. So don't be surprised when sinners sin. Don't be surprised when sinners sin. Even the best men are men at best. Fathers, mothers, siblings, coaches, pastors, leaders, teachers, mentors, disciples, they'll sin. Some of them against you. And it will hurt a lot. Sin always hurts. I mean, if you want a picture of that, just look at what Jesus had to suffer on the cross. Sin hurts, sin causes pain. Sin must be dealt with seriously and completely by the forgiveness and reconciliation rooted in the gospel. But sin shouldn't surprise us. Sinners sin. So living wisely in this sinful earth is acknowledging that sin is always part of the equation. Don't expect people to be perfect. They will fail you. Don't expect yourself to be perfect. You will sin against God and other people. Instead, when you sin and when other people sin, you have to deal with the sin that the way God has commanded us by bringing everything to the foot of the cross of Jesus Christ. There is when our sin is dealt with. There is where our sin is forgiven. There is where we can actually forgive other people of their sins against us too. But this persistent sin problem, this wicked nature that survived even the flood makes us cry out, we're wretched. We're wretched men and boys and women and girls and what is, what is wrong with us? Who's gonna set us free from this slavery to sin? Now that, just, that leads us to our fourth point. Man still needs a savior. Christ is the promised seed. Who was here when we preached the Genesis five? You know, those names like Adam and Seth and uh, Kenan and Enosh and da, 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 da. You remember how all of those, the formula ended, right? It went like this. So and so lived this many years, and then he lived this, then he had a son named this, and he lived this many more years after the son, the other sons and daughters, he lived this many total years, and he died. Good, great job, you're paying attention. So Seth, blah, 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 and then he died, and then Enosh, blah, 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 and then he died, and Mahalo, and then he died, right? He died, he died, he died, he died. It's the, the drumbeat of Genesis chapter five. What's the point? We're asking, is this guy the savior? Okay, he died, well, it can't be him. Is his son the savior? Okay, no, he died too. Is his son the savior? Man, all the way down, all the way down until Genesis chapter five, verse 32, we get to who? Noah, Noah, not Abraham, uh, Abraham's chapter 10. Noah, 5.32. After Noah was 500 years old, Noah fathered Shem, Ham, and Japheth. So we're asking the whole time of, of Noah's time in the ark and afterwards, is Noah the savior of the world? We look at verse 28 of chapter nine. After the flood, Noah lived 350 years. All the days of Noah were 950 years and he died. Not Noah, a dead savior cannot save, he dead. So the search for the sea continues. Who's gonna be the one? Who's gonna bring us salvation from sin? Who's gonna finally be the champion? Look in chapter, chapter nine, verse 26. Noah said, blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, 
and let Canaan be his servant. And may God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem and let Canaan be his servant. The chosen line continues with Shem. It's gonna be one of Shem's descendants. But who? Turn with me all the way to Luke chapter three. Luke is in the New Testament. Uh, you, can, you can use table of contents if you want to. If you know the order of the book of the New Testament, it goes Matthew, Mark, Luke. Luke chapter three is where we're going. So during Christmas, we often celebrate the Christmas story. You know, Jesus came, he was born of manger. These are his parents. This is his ancestry, his lineage. We, all, we often uh, kind of skip past the genealogies of Jesus, but it's part of the Christmas story. Matthew starts with one. Luke saves this until chapter three. Luke chapter three, verse 21. Now, when all the people were baptized and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens opened. The Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove and a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son, as was supposed, of Joseph, the son of Heli, the son of Mathat, the son of Levi, the son of Melchi, the son of Janai, the son of Joseph. I can keep going, you get the point. Jump all the way to verse 34. The son of Jacob, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham, the son of Terah, the son of Nahor, the son of Serug, the son of Ruach, the son of Peleg, the son of Eber, the son of Shelah, the son of Canaan, the son of Arphaxad, the son of Shem. Shem matters because he is the great, 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 keep going, ancestor of the savior of the world. Shem and Noah and Lamech and all those before and all the others after in this genealogy point to the chosen savior, the chosen one who's coming to rescue the world. Not just from a global flood, not just from a bunch of water, but from our sin, from sin, our sin that the flood couldn't wash away from our sin that will send us to hell if we don't repent, from our sin that we cannot fix, that we cannot cleanse of our own power. This Jesus Christ is who Shem was looking forward to, is who Noah was looking forward to. That was thousands of years ago. But we know exactly who the Savior is. We know his name. We know what he's like. We know what he said. We know what he did. We know how he saved humanity. He died on a cross. He rose again from the dead. He lives and reigns even today. That's the chosen Messiah. That's the savior of the world. That's who the, all of Genesis is looking for. And we found him because God showed him to us. So no matter what happens in your life, the craziness of school or family or of work, relationships, your greatest need your greatest joy, your greatest love and hope is in this savior, Jesus Christ. God gave his best to us in his son. He's better than grades. He's better than school. He's better than any achievement. He's better than any love. Christ is our all in all. That's who we long for. That's who all the truth brings us to. So whatever storm you enter in life, you need to remember these truths. Man is still man, made in the image of God. God is still God, the promise-keeping Messiah. Man is still sinful, and we cannot fix ourselves. And man still needs a savior, and that savior is Jesus Christ. Let's pray.
Father, we thank you that from the very beginning, your plan was perfect and you had a perfect savior in mind. We thank you, Lord, that we live on this side of the flood, that we live on this side of the cross and that we've been given so much truth, so much knowledge. Would it be real to us, Lord? Would you change us with it? We're not content to just have a bunch of facts in our head, but we will be lovers of God because you loved us first in Jesus Christ, our Lord. We thank you and we praise you for your faithfulness all the way back to Noah, all the way to Christ, even to us. It's in his perfect and precious name we pray, amen.